Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be exploring Buddhist chanting. Buddhist chanting has been done for many centuries throughout the world. And today we're going to be exploring what Buddhist chanting is, why it's done, and help you to further develop your chanting practice. And we'll also open up the floor for any questions that you're having about any questions related to Gautama Buddha's teachings, as well as any questions that you might be having on your meditation practice. Because on Wednesday at 9 o'clock Thai time is our time to focus on breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, and chanting. We rotate these every three weeks. And then on Sundays at 9 o'clock Thai time, we focus on each chapter of the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. And this week, we're on chapter nine, which is, what is gamma and how does it affect me? So we're exploring gamma. But next week, this Sunday, essentially four days from now, we're going to be diving into chapter 10, which is, what is merit? So we're going to be exploring that on Sunday at nine o'clock. But today, Let's discuss Buddhist chanting and help you understand how it's been used throughout the years, throughout the centuries, and how it can benefit your practice. And then we'll actually get into some chanting as well. So I'm glad you're here. Welcome. And let's get started. Buddhist chanting has been used all throughout the centuries in order to hand down the teachings of Gautama Buddha. Gautama Buddha's teachings that we have today have been captured in the Pali language. The source text that we use dates back to about 800 CE, or some people might say AD. CE is a way of saying common error, where the calendar isn't connected to the Christian calendar. So kind of a more homogenous way of referring to the years are before Christ, People would say BC, so we usually say BCE, which stands for Before Common Error. And for AD or after death, we say Common Error. This is a way to refer to the year without necessarily anchoring it to the Christian calendar. However, the years are still based on the Christian calendar. So if you hear me say BCE, that stands for Before Common Error, or if you hear me say CE, this stands for Common Error, but the year is exactly the same. So right now is 2020 CE, or Common Error. 
Okay, so the collection of teachings that we have that we refer to as the Pali Canon or the Pali Text, which is the largest collection of teachings from Gautama Buddha that we have, are in the Pali language. We have thought for a very long time that the Buddha actually spoke in Pali, but there's been some recent developments from archaeologists that show some texts that are a little bit earlier than the Pali Canon. They're just kind of like a few remnants. So they're not a large collection. They're just a few remnants of text. And these texts are actually in a language prior to Pali. So there's good evidence that shows that the Buddha probably didn't even speak in Pali. But for the last 1,200 years or so, the source text that everybody kind of refers back to, or at least people in this tradition refer back to as the source of the Buddhist teachings is the Pali Canon or Pali text. So for the last 1200 years or so, and probably even prior to that, people have been handing the teachings down through the Pali language, and they've primarily used chanting as a way of preserving the teachings. Because what chanting does is it, you need to memorize the, the words. You need to memorize the chanting in order to hand the teachings down from one generation to the next. Now, today, the Pali language, it isn't a spoken language. You know, very few people really understand the Pali language. And there's scholars and, and monks and other people who really dedicate their life to understanding the Pali text and translating it into modern language. But it's not a spoken language today, and it's not something that you need to learn as part of learning and practicing the teachings of Gautama Buddha. During Gautama Buddha's lifetime, whatever language he spoke in, we know that he spoke in the common language of that time. Because when he was part of the royal family, when he was a prince, there was a certain language that he used as part of the royal family. But when he started teaching, he used the common language that all the commoners could understand because he was interested in having his teachings reach the largest audience possible so that they could benefit from the teachings that he was sharing. So today, in today's time, the language that the largest number of people would understand would be English. So that's why I teach all in English. I don't use Pali words because if someone needed to learn Pali first, before they actually started learning and practicing the teachings, that would be a big roadblock, a big obstacle to your learning and practice of Gautama Buddha's teachings. And then once you learn Pali and you start practicing it, then to actually attain the results, you know, you could actually go your whole lifetime and never actually attain Nibbana or attain results because of this obstacle of the Pali language. And not everybody even agrees what the individual Pali words actually mean. So it would be quite an enormous feat to expect that a large majority of people would actually learn and practice in the Pali language. So everything that I teach is in English. However, there is kind of this appreciation and this gratitude for the Pali text, and we still chant in Pali. And we chant in this language in order to remember the teachings in Pali and pass them down from one generation to the next. A lot of temples that you might go to will chant for 30 minutes, an hour, two hours. They have periods of time at different parts in the year where they will chant an exorbitant amount of the teachings and the monks have been working on memorizing these chants. 
But again, the actual common person doesn't really understand the Pali language. So therefore, the chanting itself, even though it's preserving the teachings in the Pali language, we can't really learn that in terms of applicable teachings to actually practice in daily life. So what the Buddha did is he let people know that as they attain understanding of his teachings and they attain Nibbana in different parts of the world, that they should feel freedom to translate the teachings into their local languages. So here in Thailand, of course, the vast majority of the temples are all teaching in Thai. And as a Thai person, you can go into any temple and you can learn the Thai teachings from the ordained or from teachers who are speaking in Thai language. And they're going to be speaking in Thai language, but there's still going to be kind of this reverence or appreciation for the Pali language and perhaps chanting done in Pali language. And then with me, if people learn with me, they would learn the teachings in English, but I still teach Pali chanting because it really does actually have a fair amount of benefit. And what I noticed is that learning the Pali chants actually helped develop concentration. It helped to develop awareness of mind or mindfulness. It helped to develop memory, memorization. And it gave me a way of kind of seeing my practice evolve from session to session or week to week or month to month. I had an audible sound of as I was practicing these chants, I could hear that they were gradually improving. And this really helped to motivate me and encourage me to learn and practice. And another thing that I notice is that through chanting prior to meditation, it helps to ease the mind into meditation and kind of coax it into meditating. And then it helps to ease it back out of meditation on the backside because I will typically chant prior to meditation, I will do meditation, and then I will chant on the other side, on the backside of meditation to kind of ease the mind out of meditation. And another really nice thing about chanting and about the Theravada tradition is, again, the Theravada tradition is called Theravada because it means teachings of the elders. It's essentially considered to be the form of the teachings that is closest to the, what the Buddha actually taught during his lifetime. So we call it Theravada tradition or Theravada teachings, or some people might say Theravada school. So this Theravada teachings or teachings of the elders is considered the oldest and most closely connected to what the Buddha was actually teaching during his lifetime. And then it was spread through various regions of the world and the parts of the world that are really kind of holding these teachings the closest are places like Sri Lanka, Thailand, Myanmar, Laos, Cambodia, Southern Vietnam, but in reality, these Theravada teachings have really been spread all throughout the world. For example, wherever you are right now, these teachings are reaching you. So all of these various communities all over the world that are practicing Theravada teachings, you will find that they are most likely chanting in the Pali language. So what I'm teaching you today, you will actually be able to learn you will be able to use it as part of your own practice in order to develop your concentration, to develop your memory, to develop awareness of mind, to help ease you into meditation and ease you back out of meditation. But then also, if you choose to join any other communities in any of these host countries like Sri Lanka, Miramar, 
Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, or southern Vietnam, or anywhere in the world, even America, the UK, Australia, all of these places have Theravada practitioners and Theravada communities. If you join any of these communities, you will actually be able to use what I'm teaching you here today to join into those communities and chant right alongside of them. Because we kind of base our teachings on this poly canon, this poly text, a vast majority of the community within the community of Theravada teachings will be chanting these same chants. These are very common chants that you will see throughout Theravada communities, throughout Theravada temples. So you'll be able to join any of these communities and chant right along with them and kind of develop a connection in with the community. Where other forms of the teachings that came later, like Mahayana teachings and Vajrayana teachings, these are more localized type of traditions where if you're practicing Mahayana teachings, they will tend to chant, say in China, they will chant in Chinese or in Vietnam, they will tend to chant in Vietnamese or in another region of the world, they will tend to chant in their local language where it becomes very regionalized. But with the Theravada teachings, because we all base our teachings off of the same source text, we can actually join in together with people from Sri Lanka or Miramar, Cambodia, from US, UK, Australia, South America, anywhere in the world, Canada, all these different places, and we can sit down and actually chant together. So what I would like to do is just kind of pause here before we actually go into the instruction to learn chanting and see if anybody has any questions on anything that we've discussed so far. Hi, David. No questions, but um, something I'd just like to highlight there, which was quite helpful, I think, is that you're talking about how chanting is actually quite a practical, useful thing to do. And this is something that comes up a lot in the teachings. It's, it's not about, um, you know, summoning something magical. It's not about anything like that. This is really a uh, practice that serves a purpose in focusing the mind. And also you talked about like seeing the progress. And I think sometimes for Western audiences, things like chanting can potentially be off-putting because they see them as potentially like beguiling or mystical. And what you're saying is it's not that at all. It's actually very practical. Yeah, this is a good point, Max. And I've covered this in other sessions. So let's dive into that a little bit. So there's, there's chanting, which is what I'm going to teach you, which, as Max is saying, has a real practical purpose, right? Because what the Buddha was teaching, to me, is not a religion. It's a life practice. It's a training the mind. It's learning how to train the mind to attain this mental state of enlightenment where the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So everything that the Buddha teaches and everything that's taught comes back to training the mind for those results of an enlightened mind. So chanting creates a practical purpose where it improves the quality of your mind through observing mindfulness and creating awareness of mind, through creating concentration and clarity of mind, through building memorization and so forth and so on, the things that I taught earlier. But what you'll see in some other traditions and some other teachings is people might say that they are looking for a mantra. And for me, a mantra and a chant are very different. A mantra or some of these other traditions, what they will teach is that there's kind of like a special words that invoke kind of almost like special powers or things that kind of 
create something special, almost like a prayer, right? Chanting these special words is going to produce something glorious for you, or it's going to improve your gamma somehow, or it's going to eliminate darkness in the mind, or, you know, all these different things. These are mantras, and this isn't what the Buddha taught. The Buddha didn't teach that there's some kind of special words or special prayers that we should use in order to train the mind, because these words are really just that. They're just words. They're just chanting. It's just a practice to train the mind to cultivate mindfulness or awareness of mind, to train the mind for concentration, for memory, for clarity of mind. There's a practical purpose of how we use chanting to train our mind. We're not actually chanting in order to invoke any kind of special privileges or special spirits or there's no kind of prayer or sending this chant out to anybody to try to create change for somebody else. These chants are all about you. This whole practice, this whole practice of learning and practicing these teachings is all about you and training your mind. It has nothing to do with you training other people. So Max brings up a really good point that for the Western audience, it's important that you distinguish this, that this practice of chanting is all about training your mind. It's not about invoking some kind of special powers to create some benefit in the world. So that's a very good thing to, to always keep in mind with your chanting practice. Thanks for bringing that up, Max. Thanks, David. All right, so I'm gonna to move to the very first slide that I have to share with you guys. And for the podcast, I will be talking about this, all the live streaming that we're doing around the world. And for the virtual classroom, you guys should be able to see a slide that is titled the triple gem or the triple jewel. And we'll be going through this for the podcast so that they can actually hear what the actual chants are. This first chant is the one that will typically start off any kind of gathering of practitioners for Dhamma talks. Dhamma talks or talks about the teachings, the Dhamma is the teachings, is where a teacher like me will come in and based on requests of the community, will actually share teachings with the community. And prior to actually sharing the teachings, there tends to be a period of meditation and chanting in order to kind of prepare everybody's mind for the talk that's about to be shared. Now, on Wednesdays, I teach meditation, and then on Sundays, I, I just teach the teachings. But if we were live, if you were in actually a retreat with me, or if you were in any of my classes here in Chiang Mai, we always start with some chanting, some meditation, and then we move into actual Dhamma talk or an actual discussion about the teachings. So learning the chanting is really helpful that when you join into a community, usually prior to the Dhamma talks, they will actually have chanting and meditation to prepare your mind and kind of clear it out to prepare to receive this knowledge or wisdom from whoever is actually teaching the class. So this first chant is usually the one that we start off with and each community is a little bit different, but this is a very common one that pretty much everyone uses from the beginning. 
And what the triple gem or the triple jewel is, this is the three things that the Buddha talks about that we need to have appreciation and, and gratitude for. The first one is, of course, the Buddha. And that's the first gem or the first jewel. The second one is the teachings that he actually shared, the actual teachings. And then the third thing is the Sangha or the community, because the community is made up of ordained males, ordained females, and then what we call household practitioners. So there's like the ordained practitioners and there's the household practitioners. And these practitioners are all working to the same goal, which is enlightenment. But the ordained path is kind of like a mother's womb where they don't work. They don't have boyfriends, girlfriends, husband, wives. They don't have any obligations. They don't have cars or motorbikes or things like this. They don't have to pay for their house or their clothes or their food. Everything's essentially given to them part of donations so that they can focus on learning and practicing the teachings to attain enlightenment. And usually there's a community around these teachers, these ordained practitioners, in order to support them in furthering their practice. And the more that they further their practice, the more teachings that are available for the community. So there's kind of this exchange where the ordained practitioners are out learning and practicing the teachings, gaining a lot of experience and training the mind. The household practitioners are out working and doing their daily life, but then they kind of come together for the household practitioners to share donations of food, clothes, money, and the ordained practitioners will teach and share the teachings that benefit the people. So the Buddha put this system in place where they're kind of interdependent, where the monks can't work and get food on their own. They're required to be around the, the household practitioners and the household practitioners wouldn't be able to learn and understand the teachings without a teacher, somebody like me or an ordained practitioner. So there's kind of this interdependency and I feel the reason why the Buddha did this is as someone's mind becomes more and more enlightened, there's kind of a tendency to seclude yourself. There tends to be this tendency to kind of go within and just kind of almost be secluded by yourself and kind of retreat to the forest, so to speak. So the Buddha set it up that as these monks' minds are becoming more and more and more enlightened, they can't just go be secluded for a month or two. They are going to have to be around the lay people in order to get food because they're not allowed to keep food overnight. So they have to see lay people pretty much every day if they're going to eat and stay alive. Because as your mind becomes more and more enlightened, you may notice you have a tendency to kind of seclude yourself or isolate yourself. This is normal part of the progression of enlightenment. And this is why we have other teachings to help us learn how to not be so secluded. But this is what the Sangha is, is the community of ordained practitioners and household practitioners. And it's the household practitioners that are supporting the ordained. And it's also the household practitioners that are supporting like someone like me to actually teach. I'm a household practitioner and I still do a little bit of work just to kind of help my family but I also spend an enormous amount of time teaching and sharing the teachings with people like you. So people will make donations and things like this in order to help 
us to focus on teaching and having the resources we need in order to, to teach the public. So this triple gem or this triple jewel is the Buddha, the teachings, and the community of practitioners. We call it the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. These are the Pali words that we use to refer to this. But the English would just be, you know, the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. Because in order to really attain enlightenment, you can't do this by yourself. You need the Buddha. The Bu a Buddha is someone who has an enormous amount of knowledge and wisdom to be able to lead others to enlightenment. And the teachings, of course, we need the teachings. And we need the community. Without having a community of people around you that you can learn from, that can support your learning, that can encourage you, that can be a support system for you in this path to enlightenment, it would be very, very difficult. In fact, what makes a Buddha a Buddha is that he did this on his own. He did it all by himself without the assistance or guidance of anyone else. So that's one of the things that makes a Buddha a Buddha. But for you, in order to attain enlightenment, you're going to need a community of people around you so that you can learn the teachings, you can discuss the teachings, you can see kind of modeling and kind of model people's speech and their actions and things like this. And you can kind of see how people practice these teachings to become more and more enlightened and experience a more enlightened mind. So this triple gem is one of the real core things that is part of the Buddhist teachings is always having appreciation and respect for the triple gem or triple jewel. So we chant this chant in order to show respect and show gratitude, show appreciation to the triple gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, or the Buddha, the teachings in the community. Here you see the Pali word on the first line, the Pali phrase. And then I put the English underneath of it so that you would understand what you're actually chanting. Because the more connection you have to the teachings and the more you understand them in your own language, the more connected you can be to this chant and the more kind of intention you can put behind it. So this first phrase that we chant, Arahang Samma Sam Hotom Bhakawa Potang Bhakawandhang Apiwatemi. And you see a period there, that's the end of the phrase. What this one is chanting is saying, the perfectly enlightened one is worthy and rightly self awakened. In other words, he awakened his mind, he became enlightened on his own by himself. And then it says, I bow down before the awakened, perfectly enlightened one. It's really common in Buddhist communities that at the end of this phrase, they will actually bow down. They will actually put their head down to the ground and bow. And what this is really doing for you in your mind, if you choose to do this, is it's helping to empty the ego because this is part of the teachings, is to train the mind and to dissolve the ego. And anybody who's attained enlightenment will have needed to eliminate the ego. So by chanting this, not only are you getting the memorization, the clarity of mind, the awareness of mind, uh, the memorization, not only are you easing your mind into meditation and other things I already talked about, but if you choose to bow, you can work at dissolving the ego and eliminating the ego.
This second phrase, Savakato Bhagavata Tammo Tamang Namasami. This one is the Dhamma, which is the teachings, is well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one. I pay respect to the Dhamma. Okay? And then, and that's essentially just saying I pay respect to the teachings. Then the third phrase, Supatipano Pakawato Sawakasanko Sanghanamami. This one is the Sangha, the community of practitioners of the perfectly enlightened one. So the, the community of practitioners of the Buddha, essentially his disciples, have practiced well. They've practiced the teachings well. Essentially their conduct, their discipline, they're practicing very well. I pay respect to the Sangha or I pay respect to the community. So this is the first chant. And I would like to just kind of take an opportunity for you guys to do this together, all of us. All right, so if you guys, if you want to just put your hands together and just kind of focus your mind very calmly on the words. There isn't a performance. This is just kind of easing the mind to kind of build some familiarity with the chanting, with the words. And I'll do this and you can just kind of follow right along with the mind and just kind of Wherever you're at, just say the words. You know, I said these wrong for years and years and years before I actually started to develop more of a chanting practice. So wherever you're at today, it's okay. Just fumble right through it and just start building some familiarity with it. So bring your hands together and just kind of chant along with me. Arahang Sammasamhoto Bhakava Potang Mahakawanang Abhivatiyami. And then usually at the end of the phrase, if I'm sitting like this, I would just put my hands up to my forehead. Normally, if you're in a big group, they will bow down to the ground. Savakato Bhakawatamo. Dhamang Namasami Supatipano Bhakavato Savakasanko Sanghang Namami So that's the three phrases. And you're normally taking a breath, kind of like halfway through there. There's a couple of places where I tend to take the breath. And this is starting to build your awareness of mind and awareness of the breath, because as you're easing into meditation, those are things that you're going to need as part of your meditation. You're going to want to have awareness of mind and awareness of breath. So here with your chanting, not only is it building concentration and building memory, but it's helping to build awareness of mind and awareness of the breath. Okay, so this is something that you can practice on your own and go through each day, you know, in the morning, in the evening, at different times. You can just practice these chants little by little. Okay, and you'll just get better and better each time you do it. 
The next chant that we have is a very simple and very basic chant. Some people might even just decide to start here. Oftentimes when we're teaching our children here in Thailand, two, three, four years old, we will just teach them this chant. And when I first learned to chant, I was probably, I don't know, I was probably around 27, 28 years old, uh, 29 years old. And I kind of looked at myself as a baby, as a child. So I was doing kind of like the same things that the Thai children were doing. So I noticed that the Thai children were all chanting this particular chant, and that's what they tended to start out with. So I started out with this chant, and I just learned this one over and over and over and over again. And then after a few weeks, I started doing the previous chant that we did because the sounds of these Pali words are very similar. You'll notice that if you learn this chant, that they'll show up, some of these words will show up in some of the other chants. So if you want to kind of start somewhere and kind of set the bar really low, you could just start with this chant, okay? This one is paying respect to Gautama Buddha. Here, the way it sounds is, and we do that three times over and over and over again. So it's less for your mind to try to remember if you're just getting started, this might be a good place to start. And here you can see the English translation is respect to the perfectly enlightened one, the worthy one, the rightly self-awakened one. Oftentimes when we're referring to Gautama Buddha as the perfectly enlightened one or the fully perfectly enlightened Buddha, you will see that they'll add self-awakened. That's what a Buddha is. They're self-awakened. They don't have teachers. They don't have guides. They discover the teachings on their own and then they share those teachings with others and help those people attain this mental state of enlightenment as well which is a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So here, we would just say this one three times over and over and over again. So let's do this one together. Just bring your hands together, and then we'll just chant it all together. Okay, so that's the second chant. So we'll move on to the next chant then. This is the last one. I usually do these three. These three are a really good set to use because they're very common. If you join communities to chant, they'll pretty much be chanting these three. And there'll be others as well, but these are the, the main three. So this one, it sounds like this. Iti piso pakawa arahang samasamoto 
วิจาจารณังสามโนสขาโตโรกาวิตุอนุเตโรภูริสาตามาสติสัตตาตาวามนุสนังภูตโตปากวตี And then there, that's the end where I would then slip into meditation from that point. And here you can see the translations as well. This one says. He is the perfectly enlightened one, a worthy one, a rightly self-awakened one, consumerate in knowledge and conduct. Essentially, saying that he's very wise, and his conduct, meaning his intentions, his speech, his actions, the way he conducts himself, is very admirable. One who has gone the good way, knower of the worlds. What this is referring to is the various realms. There's five realms that the Buddha taught. There's the heavenly realm, the human realm, the animal realm, the afflicted spirits realm, and then there's the hell realm. And Gautama Buddha, through his experience of his rebirths, he experienced all these five realms. So that's why he was aware of them and was able to teach them. So we say he's the knower of the worlds, essentially knower of these realms. Then the last phrase is unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught. Essentially, what enlightenment is in this path to enlightenment? It's leaving behind these animal instincts that we have that create craving and anger and this ignorance or unknowing of reality, this hatred, this aggressiveness that we have sometimes, this hostility that we have. But for those who choose to be taught, right? If you're choosing to be taught, then the Buddha's teachings will help you to become more and more human. Essentially, where you have right intention, right speech, right action, where you're a more polite, more peaceful, more respectful, more kind, more friendly person to be around. But the Buddha didn't just go around and kind of push himself into various communities and try to force people. To learn his teachings through guilt or fear or shame—that's not how these teachings work. Because these teachings are actually part of it is to eliminate guilt, shame, and fear in the mind, among other things. And in order to actually get any benefit from these teachings, somebody needs to choose to actually learn, right? Like you can't force someone to attain enlightenment. It's a personal choice of someone choosing to step forward, as you guys have. By deciding to join this class and our programs, you're choosing to take on this training, to learn this training, and then implement it in your daily life to improve the condition of your mind. So what this is saying is that he's an unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught. Essentially, those who are choosing to be taught. Teacher of human and divine beings. Divine beings we call devas or kind of heavenly beings. We and In English, probably refer to them more like angels. And then it says, "Awakened and perfectly enlightened." Awakened is, of course, an awakened mind, an enlightened mind. So that's what this particular chant is referring to. Probably out of the three, 
I would say it's a little bit more complicated and I only say that because it took me so many years to learn how to actually chant this. So if you want to kind of progress, you could learn to chant all three at one time if you want, or you could just focus on one at a time and kind of get really good at it and then move to the next one. Depends on how you would like to pursue. But let's chant this one together and then we'll actually go through and chant all of them together as one big group. So go ahead and put your hands together and let's chant the ETP so. All right, so let's do this one together. ETP so mahakawa arahang samasam hoto we cha charanang sam hono sakato roka vitu anutero purisa tama sati sata tawa manu sanang Puto Pakawati. Okay, so now that you've got a feel for these, let's actually go through them through a whole session where we start with the first one, move right into the second one, and then into this third one. Maybe Max can kind of rotate the slides as we um, are chanting. That way, you guys can see them and you won't have to click anything yourself, but Max will just kind of move them through for us, okay? And as you build your memorization and your concentration and your awareness of mind, you'll get better and better at this where you won't need the visual. But now, since you're just starting, it's better to actually have this. And since you don't have these slides, if you have the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, these are in chapter 11. You can find them in chapter 11. And some of the students, I make this laminated sheet and they'll just use this laminated sheet as part of their chanting. So you're welcome to get one of these if you want to. I can send you the file and you can go laminate it if you like. Just contact me and let me know that you would like that file and you can go print it and laminate it if you want to make one of those. But for today, Max will just move us through the actual text so that you guys can see it. And normally when I chant this, I would keep my eyes closed because you're working on your concentration, your memory, your clarity of mind, you're becoming aware of the mind. But until you memorize it, you can't do that. So work on memorizing these first. Okay, so you can read it right off of here for today and for probably many weeks after this. Here we go, all together as a class. Arahang samasam hotom hakawa Potang mahakawanang apivate ami Savakato mahakawata tammo Tamang namasami Supatipano bhakavato Savakasankho 
things that I notice with this chanting that I haven't mentioned already is you know sometimes when you get ready to meditate you have the intention to sit down and meditate and sometimes your mind can be really busy you know like maybe you're experiencing that as part of your meditation practice where your mind is you're interested to meditate you've made a decision to sit down and meditate but when you actually sit down the mind is uh, is still kind of like busy because you haven't meditated and, and it's kind of busy and rapid one of the things that I noticed with chanting is it's kind of like that speed bump before meditating. It kind of like slows me down. Like I talk about easing the mind into meditation. Instead of like, like really, really fast, you kind of have to consciously slow the mind down and kind of ease in with this chanting where it's, Arahang Samma Samoto Bhagava. Right? It's just easing the mind into meditation and you're really putting your intention behind it. You're having your concentration, your awareness of mind, your memory is kicking in. And this is all really beneficial leading into meditation. Now, there's other things you can do to quiet the busy mind prior to meditation where you can do like walking meditation. That's another thing that I usually will suggest to people if they have a real busy mind and the mind doesn't actually want to sit down to meditate. But if you make this chanting kind of a regular part of your meditation practice where you're using it to ease the mind into meditation, I think you'll find a lot of benefit there. And then once you've meditated, coming out of meditation, it really helps to ease the mind out of meditation as well, so that you're not just popping into meditation and popping out. Because some of the words that Gautama Buddha shared with us about meditation is he said, prior to meditation, we should set up mindfulness in front of us, right? So mindfulness is awareness of mind. 
And setting up mindfulness in front of you is setting up awareness of mind in front of you prior to actually meditating. So that might be like for me here in Thailand, it might be taking off my shoes, you know, walking into the house, using the bathroom, kind of emptying the organs, maybe get a little sip of water, you know, kind of get the clothes nice and comfortable, get the, the cushions or whatever I'm going to sit on nice and comfortable. And now just kind of preparing the body to get into meditation because you want the body to be comfortable. You don't want it to be luxurious and you don't want it to be painful. You want it to be in the middle. You want it to be comfortable because if you feel a lot of pain during meditation, your mind is just going to experience pain, 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 and it's going to be hard to train it. Whereas if your body's too luxurious, then the mind's going to have a tendency to turn off and be unattentive. So you want to kind of keep the mind in this middle place where it's attentive, it's alert, it's aware. So the body needs to be comfortable. And then this chanting is kind of easing the mind and kind of bringing that attentiveness, that awareness of mind through the chanting so that then when you actually ease into meditation, you've kind of done a little bit of a warm up before you get into meditation. And then coming out of meditation, rather than just pop out of meditation, you kind of ease the mind back out of meditation with a nice, easy chanting on the way out. And just like everything, nothing is permanent, right? So, you know, a good 95, 98% of the time, I'm usually chanting on the way in and on the way out. But sometimes I don't, you know, sometimes I might have a little bit of a headache or there was about a two week period last year where I had a cracked rib where I couldn't chant because I couldn't get the air in my lungs. So I didn't chant. Or sometimes when I'm doing meditation, it might be a meditation prior to, to sleep, going to bed and my mind becomes so sleepy, I just decide I'm just going to go to sleep and I don't even chant on the way out. So if you choose not to chant at certain times during your practice, that's okay because it's not about permanence, not about everything has to be done exactly the same all the time. But I would say if you generally make this part of your practice, that you will find some benefit in it. And the way to know whether that works for you or not is try it and see if it works. And if you do this for a few weeks and you're noticing that it's helping you and it's improving your practice and it's beneficial, then use it. But if you're noticing that it doesn't really help you and you would prefer to do some yoga or some prayers or some other things prior to your meditation, then do that. This is just what I do and what I've done with the Buddhist teachings. And it really works well for me. It's worked really well for many, many years now. So that's why I share it with you. But not everybody has to do this exactly the same way as me. What's important is that you follow what the Buddha is suggesting, which is set up mindfulness in front of you. So start becoming aware of the mind before you meditate. And for you, you might have a different way of doing that. It might be something completely different. Like I mentioned, it might be yoga, it might be prayer, it might be something else. But for me, this is how I do it. And it's something that I share with students so that you can see the benefit in it. And maybe it will benefit your practice and it'll improve your clarity of mind, 
your concentration, your awareness of mind, your memory. It'll improve your breathing and kind of experience your breathing. And you'll have this audible sound to kind of ease the mind into meditation. And then you will also be able to join Buddhist communities all over the world that are practicing these same teachings that you'll be able to chant right along with them. So I would say give this a try for a few weeks if you've never done this before and see how it works for you and see how it's improving and see how you like it. And if it works, keep it. And if it doesn't, then use something else. But keep true to the Buddhist teachings, which is setting up mindfulness before you meditate, setting up mindfulness in front of you. That was his words. So however you do that is completely up to you. So any questions from anybody that I know, Bill, you've been working on chanting. Max, you've been working on chanting. Any questions on meditation or chanting or any of the teachings that we've been sharing in this program for the last nine or ten weeks now? I'd like to ask a question about uh, walking meditation, David, if you had any instructions around that, because I know that it's quite, it plays quite a prominent role in modern monasteries and also in the Buddha's time, but it's not something you see people doing in the West very often. In fact, I've actually been trying it recently outside uh, because it felt uncomfortable and I thought all the more reason to do it because it's not something you see very often being done in Western cities uh, or Western streets. So, but with that in mind, do you have any instructions? Yeah, I love walking meditation and I've used it successfully for a lot of different situations. I haven't taught it as part of this program yet because I don't have a moving camera. But maybe what I need to do is maybe do like a little video on it and then play that video as part of the, the class because you can't really see me doing walking meditation. But let me give you a little bit of pointers as much as I can given the limitation of our fixed camera here. I have used walking meditation as a way of kind of emptying out the energy prior to if I was gonna do seated meditation. Oftentimes, especially early in practice, my mind tend to be very busy. It tended to be very rapid, a lot of thoughts, like just a multitude of thoughts, like cluttering of thoughts, just the bombardment of thoughts. And the last thing that was on my mind is actually sitting down to meditate. It's like, it's like trying to contain a pressure cooker. It was like the mind was like a pressure cooker and sitting down was like the last thing that I would think about because sitting down 30 seconds later, boom, I wanted to be right back up again. So what I used walking meditation for is to walk and kind of, it, it almost felt like I was kind of pouring those busy thoughts out and just kind of emptying them out of the mind. And what I noticed is if I walked for 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes, then the mind was comfortable to actually sit down. It was actually looking forward to it. It actually felt good because I was kind of busy walking. So I've used walking meditation for that purpose, to empty out the mind of this erroneous bombardment of thoughts prior to sitting down. I've also used walking meditation if I'm sitting down and I'm doing seated meditation for a period of time and the mind becomes sleepy, becomes unattentive, unalert, unaware and I want to invigorate the mind and become more attentive, I will stand up and then I used to do walking meditation 
and then I might switch back to seated again if I still wanted to continue meditation session. So you can use it to bring the mind to the middle. Essentially, if it's too much energy, you can use walking meditation to bring it down. Or if the mind is too slow and too sluggish, you can use it to kind of make it more attentive by doing walking meditation. And I talked about doing those kind of prior to seated meditation or once you're doing seated meditation, kind of stand up and, and do it. But also I've used walking meditation just as a standalone as well. There were periods of time where my meditation practice was going really, really well. And I felt like I kind of wanted to test my mind a bit where I wanted to kind of see how focused and how much clarity, how much concentration did I really have. So after doing meditation for however many months or years or whatever, I got to the point where I started challenging my mind more. And what I would do is like on a Friday night or a Saturday night, my wife has a massage shop, a yoga studio in Chiang Mai City. And on Friday and Saturday, evening she would close her shop around eight o'clock and this is the time where tourists and Thai people are coming out for dinner and coming out for nighttime activities so what I used to do is I used to go out on the street and I would walk kind of like a four block radius and when you're doing walking meditation you just stare about one or two meters in front of you you just fixate your your eyes on the floor on the on the ground and you just and you walk flat footed and you transfer your weight, which I could show you better if we had a movable camera. So by me building up my meditation practice where my mind was very focused, very concentrated, I would go out on the streets. And if you've ever been out on the streets in Thailand, there isn't just an even sidewalk. Some streets don't even have sidewalks. You're right alongside of the motorbikes and the walking traffic and the cars and everybody else. So here I am kind of at nighttime on a Friday or Saturday night, kind of staring at the ground and just slowly walking step by step. And I would do this for 30 minutes to an hour and I would just walk around a four block radius and just keep on going around and around and around and just staring at that one fixed spot. So as I was walking, you know, there'd be a motorbike, vroom, you know, I'd walk, I'd smell alcohol or, you know, there'd be somebody walking by with a conversation. There would be, you know, different things going all around me because I'm on a, on a busy street, essentially. But for me, what I was doing was testing the mind to stay focused and concentrated on the meditation and not allow this zooming motorbike or this group of tourists, or this smell of alcohol, or the smell of coffee, or even sometimes people would hit me, you know, because some parts of the walking, you know, we were walking really close, so shoulders would bump into me and hit me, and just keeping focused, not allowing the ego to be concerned about well, who bumped into me, don't they see I'm meditating, or anything like that, it's just boom, just being unaffected by that big hard shoulder that I just got. Or sometimes I would walk and there would be like certain portions of the overhang of businesses, maybe it rained a couple hours ago. And as I'm walking and in real stillness of mind, there would be a raindrop that would just boom, hit me right square in the center of my head. And rather than, you know, what was that? And being fearful or being concerned of what that is, 
is just staying focused on the meditation and focusing the mind on that fixed spot, maintaining the concentration. So I don't suggest you go out on the street when you're first learning this, but that's where you can take your practice to after you've done a lot of seated meditation, after you've done a lot of walking meditation, maybe indoors or in a forest or in a park or different places, you can actually test your mind in situations like this where you go out in a busy environment and you see how focused can you keep the mind. Because once you do that and you have that level of training and you've done it multiple times, it's pretty easy to stay focused in a conversation with a friend or like stay focused in this class with you guys because I've really pushed my mind and really trained it and tested it in many different situations that if the mind can stay focused and concentrated on the busy street on Friday and Saturday night with all these various things going on, then staying focused on a conversation or teaching like this, it's, it's super easy because I've trained my mind to that point. So rather than wait for people to test your mind is you have to test your mind yourself and walking meditation could potentially be a way that you could use to further test your mind not only the things that I've mentioned already of how you can use walking meditation, but you can use it to test your mind. So, so the more practical part of actually doing it is I typically will stand with my arms, my hands in front like this or in back. I don't usually put them to the side like this because if somebody hits me, you know, while I'm walking on a busy street, my arm might kind of flutter like this. So I'll tend to kind of put them in front like this or the same thing in the back. And then I look straight down at the ground about one meter, one and a half meters, and I just put the foot straight out in front of me, flat-footed, and then I transfer the weight. And then I put the next foot in front of me and transfer the weight. And there's just this kind of like evenness of walking where you're not going heel to toe, you're going flat foot and then transfer, flat foot, transfer and if we were in person I could or if I did the video with a moving camera I could give you more instruction than what I'm able to with this fixed camera but based on all of that do you have any questions Max? Sure well that's already been very helpful thanks and so when you're doing this are you using the sensation of the step as the object of focus or the the sight of the ground in front of you. The sight of the ground in front of me. And one of the things that this is good for is in meditation, you're trying to root the mind into the present moment. And that's why in seated meditation, lying meditation, standing meditation, that's why we're focusing on the breath because the breath is the present moment. So we're focusing on the breath. Well, when you're walking, you're not so much focused on the breath you're focused on that fixed spot on the ground. And it's really nice when you're walking like in a busy street eventually if you get to that point because it really helps to root the mind in the present moment because you might hear a motorbike in the distance, but in your mind prior to training this way, you might kind of look and kind of see where is that motorbike and be concerned about it. But what you train your mind to do by fixing on this one meter in front of you is not to be concerned about the future. Yeah, I hear that motorbike, but that motorbike might not ever even come into my 
peripheral. It may not even come into my space. So it trains you not to worry about, not be concerned about the future. And then when somebody maybe hits me and knocks my shoulder off and then they're continuing to walk, it trains the mind that's in the past. Don't focus on the past. Just keep the mind rooted in the present moment. So in addition to everything else that I talked about, the walking meditation really helps to root the mind in the present moment if you fixate it just one meter in front of you because that's all that matters. When you're walking out there on the busy street, it's just that one meter in front of you. Oftentimes when we walk or we drive a car or something like this, we look really far out into the future and we have all these concerns about everything in the future. And sometimes we even look behind us, right? And worried about what's in the past. But in these practices, what you're trying to do is train the mind to come into the present moment. And walking meditation, the present moment is just one meter, maybe two meters at most. That's the present moment. And that's all that matters is that present moment. And it helps you to really just let go and not focus on the future, not focus on the past, just the present moment. It's quite interesting the first time, certainly I tried this outside, experiencing things like you mentioned, a, a person coming the other way or even a car about to drive past, no chance of hitting me because you know, I'm not on the road. But the temptation to look up can be almost overwhelming. It's really interesting. Yes. That just goes to show that the mind is not, it, <laughs> is not always acting in your best interest. Like, what does it matter if there's a car coming? What does it matter if there's a person coming? Yeah. That's not important. And see, that's training the mind, right? Like, like some people have uh, asked me about, like, they're trying to eliminate their sexual craving and kind of reduce it. And they notice that every time they're out, they see beautiful women or beautiful men and their, their attention is drawn to that person right away. And it kind of like sidetracks their concentration. So that's something that you can train your mind not to do. Um, because it's not focused, it's not centered, it's not concentrated. So walking meditation is a way to do that so that you resist that urge and you realize all I need is what's right here in front of me. This is all I need. It's just this one meter, this two meters. I don't need that coffee. I don't need this conversation. I don't need that. I don't just because I, I see shoes that it, it's a beautiful pair of shoes like Maybe in the past, I might look up and be like, wow, she's sexy, right? So when you go out like this, you just train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy with nothing, just right there. And then if you train your mind that way many, many times over many sessions, well, when I'm sitting down having some fruit juice with a friend, oh, that's really enjoyable. Or if I'm just waiting in line at the motor vehicle or motor transportation bureau for the government, wow, that's really enjoyable because you've trained your mind so much just to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Just looking at the concrete ground for so many sessions of meditation that you just, everything is peaceful. Everything's content. You're satisfied with what is. And the same thing applies to seated meditation. If you can train the mind over multiple sessions to just focus on the breath 
and that's all you're focused on is the breath and you can train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy just focusing on the breath and that's it. You don't need anything else in the world but the breath or in walking meditation, staring at the concrete. All this other stuff we do is like, wow, this is, this is quite nice. I kind of enjoy this. This is, this is quite nice. So you kind of start looking at sitting in line for three or four hours at the motor vehicles differently. Or you start looking at, you know, things, I'm thinking about things that would normally bring up boredom or loneliness. You know, you start looking at those things differently because you've trained your mind so well to be alone and to not need anything. That loneliness doesn't really come to the mind anymore because you've trained your mind so well to just be by itself. Yeah, so these visual objects that might distract us during a walking meditation are just like the thoughts that might distract us in a seated meditation. Yes. Uh, it's, it, they're equivalent, really. And so I, th I think both styles are well, certainly very helpful. And it, it seems like walking meditation played quite a significant role in the times of the Buddha. I mean, there's a story of mm -hmm. Ananda, who was the Buddha's cousin and attendant, who, story goes, became enlightened as he switched from walking to lying meditation. And in that moment between them, that's, that's the story. And so it seems like these, what we might consider alternative meditation postures were actually just other ways of doing. Well keep, it, well, keep in mind that enlightenment, it's a gradual progress. So you're never gonna be able to draw a line and say, okay, three minutes ago I wasn't enlightened and now I am enlightened. You know, you can't do that. So if you're seeing a story that's kind of implying that, that's not possible because enlightenment isn't instantaneous. The next thing I'll add there is, you know, the Buddha gave us these four positions because, of course, he understood impermanence. He understood that if he gave us just one position, like seated meditation, not everyone can sit, and you're not going to be able to sit in the same position your whole life. So, like, for example, for several months when I had my motorbike accident, I couldn't sit on the floor, and I still can't really sit very comfortably on the floor. I need to meditate pretty high up. So we have these different positions to put the body in because there's not just one. Just one would be permanent. And if you're ever learning meditation and someone's trying to kind of force you into what works for them, that's permanence. And not everybody's going to be able to do the same position all the time. So you really do need to work with these different positions to see how they benefit you and how you can use them. Um, because there's all these teachings of the Buddha and I can tell you what works for me and I can tell you how I used all of these things and you can use that information to inform your practice and try these things out and see how it works for you. But you ultimately have to try these out because what worked for me and how I use walking meditation or how I use chanting or how I use seated meditation, those all work for me, but you have to figure out exactly how these things work for you and in what situations would you like to use these. So like going out walking on the street in Thailand, I didn't do that from day one. I wouldn't suggest anybody do that from day one. And I don't know if I would ever actually walk in the same way in another country, the way that I walk in Thailand. Like I know that Thai people see me 
coming and they see me meditating, they're, you know, a motorbike's not going to just plow into me or a car's not going to just plow into me. I've had several tourists like plow into me with their shoulders and stuff because they probably aren't aware and they're not looking at me and they don't even realize someone's coming. They just kind of look up and boom, there I am and they run into me. Probably not out of intentional running into me, but just by accident. So I know these motorbikes and cars, Thai people know what I'm doing, especially wearing all white like this and with my head shaved. But I don't know that I would walk down the street in New York City or, or uh, some other places and, and practice in the same way, the walking meditation. Most people do walking meditation kind of in the forest or in a park or in a temple or things like this. But I really wanted to push my mind. I really wanted to kind of like really see how far I could go with it. So that's why I did around several blocks here in Chiang Mai. And I knew that for the most part, I knew that I I would be safe. I would be okay. I wouldn't have to be concerned about a motorbike running into me or something like this. But you have to figure these things out for yourself and apply discernment or good judgment on how you feel you could implement these things. Essentially what I'm doing is I'm making you aware of these tools like chanting and walking meditation and things like this. And you have to kind of work with them and see how it works for you. And through your own dabbling, your own practice, you'll figure out what works best. And you'll see your mind's improving with, oh, I didn't used to do chanting. I used to just meditate. And now the last two or three weeks I've been chanting and wow, it's really improving my practice. I feel like my meditation is getting so much more beneficial. My mind seems more still, more calm. Wow, this was really working. Or something you heard today, you know, if your mind's busy and you're trying to do seated meditation and you get up and you do walking and you do that for a while and you're like, wow, this is really helping me that I'm actually noticing that, yeah, it works the way David says it's working. But you have to try it for yourself so that you know that it actually works. Don't just take my word for it. Actually try it out for yourself. All right. So other questions? No questions as such for me other than that was really useful. Great to learn more about walking meditation. And I think I'm going to keep trying it more outdoors because it's not something you see people doing in England very often, as long as it's safe to do so where I'm doing it. Yeah, I would say choose a park or, you know, some kind of walking path. You know, I think that would be good for you. Yeah. You know, 10 years ago here, it would have been unusual to see someone even doing seated meditation. So I hope that before too long, we will see more people practicing walking meditation outside. Yeah, you're kind of blazing a trail. Yeah. Yeah. That's my, uh, I would encourage anyone hearing this to join me in that. Yeah, so what are you going to do if somebody walks up to you in the park while you're looking at your one meter in front of you and they say, what are you doing, sir? Are you just going to ignore them and well, keep walking or what are you going to do? <laughs> well, this actually happened to me whilst I was seated a few days ago on the beach and I heard a number of people surround me and say, excuse me, sir. And I thought, it's, it's just someone having a laugh. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, sir. It's the police, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Uh (laughs) What happened happened from there? I was, when I was in the final stage of a meta meditation, so I was very happy to see them. And uh, they they just said, 
you've got to move on from here. They actually said, you're not allowed to sunbathe here. And it, I thought it's probably best that I don't say I'm not sunbathing, I'm meditating. <laughs> <laughs> I, just did what, I, just, I just did what, what I was told. <laughs> Is that on. because of social distancing or why, why did they do that? Yeah, it was it was a bit strange because I was sat by myself and there was no one around. And I deliver, deliberately chose a spot where there was no one around. But I think, to be fair, they're just trying to discourage people from gathering on the beach. Oh, okay. Because you know, if one person's on the beach, then it's ten people, then it's groups everywhere. So normally you would have been fine, but because of where we are with COVID nineteen, you they don't want you out there. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it was just, it was a particularly sunny day and they were just concerned of the risk of more people seeing me and thinking it was okay just to uh, loiter. But normally you'd be able to sit on the beach and meditate? Yeah, it's something I do quite often here actually. Okay, okay, that's good. All right, well, just a short little class today, you know, hour and 20 minutes, just to kind of share some chanting with you guys. What I suggest is that you just work with this, like I mentioned, just work with it, try it out, see how it works for you. Give it a few weeks. Um, if you want to start with the Namo Tassa, Pakawato Arahato Sama Sambutasa, and do that one for several times, you could do that. Or if you want to start with the, the Arahan Sama Sambutasa, and just go through all of them and just do it each day before your meditation, after your meditation, look at the paper and then just kind of commit more and more of it to memory and then kind of test the mind, right? Like after you've been chanting it for a while, kind of set it aside and kind of work with it and kind of bring it back in as you need to and kind of develop the memory and see how it works for you. But definitely make sure you're meditating every day, doing breathing mindfulness meditation, that's really important for training the mind. And if you're not there yet and you need to build your practice up to that, then that's fine. Just slowly build your practice up week by week, month by month. No guilt, no shame if you forget to meditate, but just keep a consistent, dedicated, committed effort to bringing more and more meditation into your life. What I notice is when I do it in the morning, it really helps to kind of set up my day. It really helps to kind of set the day on the right track and really kind of rooting your day before the phone starts ringing, before friends start coming, before you go to work, just really get your day started with a nice meditation session. Then I notice when I do it at the end of the day, when all the phone calls have gone down and there's not many people around, it kind of helps me to ease into my sleep. And then I get a much better sleep if I've meditated prior to sleeping. So I wake up so much more refreshed. And then right away when I wake up, I'm starting with another meditation session to kind of start my day. So if you wanna just pick one of those places to actually start your meditation and just do once a day, you can, either morning or evening. And then slowly, if you build it up where you're doing both of those, that's great, where you're doing morning and evening. And then some people even do a meditation session in the middle of the day, too, if you build up to that point, especially if you're isolating yourself at home. You might actually have time to do that now for a few weeks before you actually get back to normal life. Once they start lifting all the restrictions, maybe benefit from two or three sessions a day and kind of building up your practice. But just at least pick once a day and find a place to meditate and then slowly build it up more and more where you're doing longer periods of time and more frequency. 
And what you'll notice is that you'll be training the mind more and more and more, and you'll get more and more benefit out of this. The other reason why I usually pick morning and evening, and then sometimes in the middle of the day as well, is it's nice to meditate on an empty stomach. If you've had a big, huge meal and the body's actually uh, digesting, you'll notice that that, that'll kind of tend to take activity of the body and of the mind and focus it on the digestion. So in the morning, I haven't had any food yet, so it's a perfect time to actually meditate because the stomach's empty. And then by evening time, by the time it's time to go to sleep, the stomach's naturally empty at that point as well, you know, fairly empty. So these are two like opportune times that I suggest for you to toy around with and see how it works for you. Hopefully at some point you'll build up your practice where you're meditating morning and evening and possibly even the middle of the day. But if you're only going to do once a day, kind of do morning a few times, see how it works for you, see how you like it. Do evening, you know, once a day for a few times, see how you like it and see how it works for you. What I noticed is morning sets up the day really nice. Evening prepares me for sleep and I get a really good sleep. And I only know that because I experienced it for myself. That's why I can share it with you. But you have to figure out what works best for you and see how it's working for you. So build up a meditation practice. You can use this Wednesday session at nine o'clock, Thai time, whatever time it is where you're at, to come and get help and get answers to any questions that you're having. And then on Sunday is when we dive into the more meat of the, the chapters. We're on chapter nine this week. This particular Sunday, we're gonna be covering chapter 10. There's about 24, 25 chapters in the book. So if you're reading either before Sunday or after Sunday, you've got that talk on Sunday at nine, Thai time, to get all your questions answered and for me to kind of more fully answer any questions that you have and kind of bring the teachings to life. If you're just starting into this program, all of these sessions have been captured in podcasts and they've been captured in YouTube videos where you can actually go back to chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, and so on. And you can actually learn from the chapters that we've already covered. So if you're not quite at chapter nine or chapter 10 yet, that's okay because you have the podcast and you have the YouTube videos along with the book to really kind of add to your learning. And then anytime you have questions, you can send me a message or you can come to any of these sessions and ask questions as well. So I wanna thank you guys for joining. Hope it was beneficial for you guys and that you really uh, benefited something. The only way you're gonna know if it was a benefit is if you try this stuff and, and actually work with it and see how it improves the condition of your mind. So have a really wonderful rest of your day, rest of your week. And if you're coming back on Sunday at nine or sometime in the future, I'll see you then. So have a great day and have a great week. We'll see you guys. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. 
A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.